Chapter 15, Part 5 of the 15 Decisive Battles of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dave Gillespie. The 15 Decisive Battles of the World by Sir Edwin Shepherd Creasy. Chapter 15, Part 5. It is, indeed, remarkable that Napoleon, during his numerous campaigns in Spain, as well as other countries, not only never encountered the Duke of Wellington before the day of Waterloo, but that he was never until then personally engaged with British troops, except at the siege of Toulon in 1793, which was the very first incident of his military career. Many, however, of the French generals who were with him in 1815 knew well, by sharp experience, what English soldiers were, and what the leader was who now headed them. Ney, Foy, and other officers who had served in the peninsula warned Napoleon that he would find the English infantry very devils in fight. The emperor, however, persisted in employing the old system of attack, with which the French generals often succeeded against continental troops, but which had always failed against the English in the peninsula. He adhered to his usual tactics of employing the order of the column, a mode of attack probably favored by him, as Sir Walter Scott remarks, on account of his faith in the extreme valor of the French officers by whom the column was headed. It is a threatening formation, well calculated to shake the firmness of ordinary foes, but which, when steadily met, as the English have met it, by heavy volleys of musketry from an extended line, followed up by a resolute bayonet charge, has always resulted in disaster to the assailants. See especially Sir W. Napier's glorious pictures of the battles of Brissaco and Albuera, the theoretical advantages of the attack in column, and its peculiar fitness for a French army, are set forth in the Chevalier Foyard's Traite de la Clone. Preface to the first volume of his Polybus. See also the preface to his sixth volume. It was approaching noon before the action commenced. Napoleon, in his memoirs, gives as the reason for this delay the miry state of the ground through the heavy rain of the preceding night and day, which rendered it impossible for cavalry or artillery to maneuver on it till the few hours of dry weather had given it its natural consistency. It has been supposed, also, that he trusted to the effect which the sight of the imposing array of his own forces was likely to produce on the part of the Allied army. The Belgian regiments had been tampered with, and Napoleon had well-founded hopes of seeing them quit the Duke of Wellington in a body and range themselves under his own eagles. The Duke, however, who knew and did not trust them, had guarded against the risk of this by breaking up the corps of Belgians and distributing them in separate regiments among troops on whom he could rely. At last, at about half-past eleven o'clock, Napoleon began the battle by directing the powerful force from his left wing, under his brother, Prince Jerome, to attack Hougoumont. Column after column of the French now descended from the west of the southern heights, and assailed that post with fiery valor, which was encountered with the most determined bravery. 
the French won the copse around the house, but a party of British guards held the house itself throughout the day. The whole of Bing's brigade was required to man this hotly contested post. Amid shell and shot and the blazing fragments of part of the buildings, this obstinate contest was continued. But still the English were firm in Ugmont, though the French occasionally moved forward in such numbers as enabled them to surround and mask it with part of their troops from their left wing, while others pressed onward up the slope and assailed the British right. The cannonade, which commenced at first between the British right and the French left, in consequence of the attack on Hougoumont, soon became general along both lines, and, about one o'clock, Napoleon directed a grand attack to be made under Marshal Ney upon the center and left wing of the Allied army. For this purpose, four columns of infantry, amounting to about 18,000 men, were collected, supported by a strong division of cavalry under the celebrated Kellerman, and 74 guns were brought forward, ready to be posted on the ridge of a little undulation of the ground in the interval between the two principal chains of heights, so as to bring their fire to bear on the Duke's line at a range of about 700 yards. By the combined assault of these formidable forces, led on by Ney, quote, the bravest of the brave, end quote, Napoleon hoped to force the left center of the British position to take La Haye-Saint, and then pressing forward to occupy also the farm of Mont-Saint-Jean. He then could cut the mass of Wellington's troops off from their line of retreat upon Brussels and from their own left, and also completely sever them from any Prussian troops that might be approaching. The columns destined for this great and decisive operation descended majestically from the French line of hills, and gained the ridge of the intervening eminence on which the batteries that supported them were now ranged. As the columns descended again from this eminence, the seventy-four guns opened over their heads with terrible effect upon the troops of the Allies that were stationed on the heights to the left of the Charleroi Road. One of the French columns kept to the east and attacked the extreme left of the Allies, the other three continued to move rapidly forward upon the left center of the Allied position. The front line of the Allies here was composed of Byland's brigade of Dutch and Belgians, as the French columns moved up the southward slope of the height on which the Dutch and Belgians stood, and the skirmishers in advance began to open fire, Byland's entire brigade turned and fled in disgraceful and disorderly panic. But there were men more worthy of the name behind. In this part of the second line of the Allies were posted Pack and Kemp's brigades of English infantry, which had suffered severely at Quatre Bras. But Picton was here as general of division, and not even Ney himself surpassed in resolute bravery that stern and fiery spirit. Picton brought his two brigades forward, side by side, in a thin, two-deep line. Thus joined together, they were not 3,000 strong. With these, Picton had to make head against the three victorious French columns, upward of four times that strength, and who, encouraged by the easy route of the Dutch and Belgians, now came confidently over the ridge of the hill. The British infantry stood firm, and as the French halted and began to deploy into line, Picton seized the critical moment. He shouted, 
in his stentorian voice to Kemp's brigade, a volley, and then charge. At a distance of less than thirty yards, that volley was poured upon the devoted first sections of the nearest column, and then, with a fierce hurrah, the British dashed in with a bayonet. Picton was shot dead as he rushed forward, but his men pushed on with a cold steel. The French reeled back in confusion. Pack's infantry had checked the other two columns, and down came a whirlwind of British horse on the whole mass, sending them staggering from the crest of the hill and cutting them down by whole battalions. Poisonby's brigade of heavy cavalry, the Union Brigade it was called, from its being made up of the British royals, the Scots greys, and the Irish inskillings, did this good service. On went the horsemen amid the wrecks of the French columns, capturing two eagles and two thousand prisoners. Onward still they galloped, and sabred the artillerymen of Ney's seventy-four advanced guns, then severing the traces and cutting the throats of the artillery horses, they rendered these guns totally useless to the French throughout the remainder of the day. While thus far advanced beyond the British position, and disordered by success, they were charged by a large body of French lancers, and driven back with severe loss, till Vandeleur's light horse came to their aid, and beat off the French lancers in their turn. Equally unsuccessful with the advance of the French infantry in this grand attack had been the efforts of the French cavalry who moved forward in support of it along the east of the Charleroi Road. Somerset's cavalry of the English Household Brigade had been launched on the right of Picton's division against the French horse at the same time that the English Union Brigade of heavy horse charged the French infantry columns on the left. Somerset's brigade was formed of the Life Guards, the Blues, and the Dragoon Guards. The hostile cavalry, which Kellerman led forward, consisted chiefly of cuirassiers. This steel-clad mass of French horsemen rode down some companies of German infantry near La Haye Sainte, and flushed with success, they bounded onward to the ridge of the British position. The English Household Brigade, led on by the Earl of Uxbridge in person, spurred forward to the encounter, and in an instant the two adverse lines of strong swordsmen on their strong seeds dashed furiously together. A desperate and sanguinary hand-to-hand -hand fight ensued, in which the physical superiority of the Anglo-Saxons, guided by equal skill and animated with equal valor, was made decisively manifest. Back went the chosen cavalry of France, and after them, in hot pursuit, spurred the English guards. They went forward as far and as fiercely as their comrades of the Union Brigade, and, like them, the household cavalry suffered severely before they regained the British position after their magnificent charge and adventurous pursuit. Napoleon's grand effort to break the English left center had thus completely failed, and his right wing was seriously weakened by the heavy loss which it had sustained. Ugamont, was still being assailed, and was still successfully resisting. Troops were now beginning to appear at the edge of the horizon on Napoleon's right, which he too well knew to be Prussian, though he endeavored to persuade his followers that they were Grouchy's men coming to their aid. Grouchy was, in fact, now engaged at Wavre, with his whole force against Thielmem's single Prussian corps, while the other three corps of the Prussian army were moving without opposition, save from the difficulties of the ground, upon Waterloo. Grouchy believed, on the 17th, 
and caused Napoleon to believe that the Prussian army was retreating by lines of march remote from Waterloo upon Namur and Maastricht. Napoleon learned only on the 18th that there were Prussians in wave and felt jealous about the security of his own right. He accordingly, before he attacked the English, sent Grouchy orders to engage the Prussians at wave without delay and to approach the main French army so as to unite his communications with the emperors. Grouchet entirely neglected this last part of his instructions, and in attacking the Prussians, whom he found at Wave, he spread his force more and more toward his right, that is to say, in the direction most remote from Napoleon. He thus knew nothing of Blucher's and Bulow's flank march upon Waterloo, till six in the evening of the 18th, when he received a note which Sewell, by Napoleon's orders, had sent off from the field of battle at Waterloo at one o'clock, to inform Grouchy that Bulow was coming over the heights of St. Lambert on the emperor's right flank, and directing Grouchy to approach and join the main army instantly and crush Bulow in flagrant delit. It was then too late for Grouchy to obey, but it is remarkable that as early as noon on the 18th, and while Grouchy had not proceeded as far as Wave, he and his suite heard the sound of heavy cannonading in the direction of Planchenois and Mount Saint-Jean. General Girard, who was with Grouchy, implored him to march toward the cannonade and join his operations with those of Napoleon, who was evidently engaged with the English. Grouchy refused to do so, or even to detach part of his force in that direction. He said that his instructions were to fight the Prussians at Wave. He marched upon Wave and fought for the rest of the day with Thielmann accordingly, while Blucher and Bulow were attacking the Emperor. I have heard the remark made that Grouchet twice had in his hands the power of changing the destinies of Europe, and twice wanted nerve to act. First, when he flinched from landing the French army at Bantry Bay in 1796, he was second in command to Hoosh, whose ship was blown back by a storm. And secondly, when he failed to lead his whole force from Wave to the scene of decisive conflict at Waterloo. But such were the arrangements of the Prussian general that even if Grouchet had marched upon Waterloo, he would have been held in check by the nearest Prussian corps, or certainly by the two nearest ones, while the rest proceeded to join Wellington. This, however, would have diminished the number of Prussians who appeared at Waterloo, and, what is still more important, would have kept them back to a later hour. There are some very valuable remarks on this subject in the 70th number of the Quarterly, in an article on the life of Blucher, usually attributed to Sir Francis Head. The Prussian writer General Clausewitz is there cited as expressing a positive opinion, in which every military critic but a Frenchman must concur, that even had the whole of Grouchet's force been at Napoleon's disposal, the Duke had nothing to fear pending Blucher's arrival. The Duke is often talked of as having exhausted his reserves in the action. This is another gross error, which Clausewitz has thoroughly disposed of. He enumerates the 10th British Brigade, the Division of Chase, and the Cavalry of Colert as having been little or not at all engaged, and he might have also added two brigades of light cavalry. The fact also that Wellington did not at any part of the day order up Prince Frederick's corps from Hal is a conclusive proof that the Duke was not so distressed as some writers have represented. 
Hal is not ten miles from the field of Waterloo. Napoleon had witnessed with bitter disappointment the rout of his troops, foot, horse, and artillery, which attacked the left center of the English, and the obstinate resistance which the garrison of Hougoumont opposed to all the exertions of his left wing. He now caused the batteries along the line of high ground held by him to be strengthened, and for some time an unremitting and most destructive cannonade raged across the valley, to the partial cessation of other conflict. But the superior fire of the French artillery, though it weakened, could not break the British line, and more close and summary measures were requisite. It was now about half-past three o'clock, and though Wellington's army had suffered severely by the unremitting cannonade, and in the late desperate encounter, no part of the British position had been forced. Napoleon determined, therefore, to try what effect he could produce on the British center and right by charges of his splendid cavalry, brought on in such force that the Duke's cavalry could not check them. Fresh troops were at the same time sent to assail La Haye Sainte and Hougoumont, the possession of these posts being the Emperor's unceasing object. Squadron after squadron of the French cuirassiers accordingly ascended the slopes on the Duke's right, and rode forward with dauntless courage against the batteries of the British artillery in that part of the field. The artillery men were driven from their guns, and the cuirassiers cheered loudly at their supposed triumph. But the Duke had formed his infantry in squares, and the cuirassiers charged in vain against the impenetrable hedges of bayonets, while the fire from the inner ranks of the squares told with terrible effect on their squadrons. Time after time they rode forward, with invariably the same result, and as they receded from each attack, the British artillerymen rushed forward from the centers of the squares where they had taken refuge, and plied their guns on the retiring horsemen. Nearly the whole of Napoleon's magnificent body of heavy cavalry was destroyed in these fruitless attempts upon the British right. But in another part of the field, fortune favored him for a time. Two French columns of infantry from Donzelot's division took La Haye Saint between six and seven o'clock, and the means were now given for organizing another formidable attack on the center of the Allies. On came the whirlwind, like the last but fiercest sweep of tempest blast. On came the whirlwind, steel gleams broke, like lightning through the rolling smoke. The war was waked anew. Three hundred cannon mouths roared loud, and from their throats, with flash and cloud, their showers of iron threw. Beneath their fire, in full career, rushed on the ponderous cuirassier, the lancer couched his ruthless spear, and hurrying as to havoc near, the cohort's eagles flew. In one dark torrent, broad and strong, the advancing onset rolled along. Forth harbingered by fierce acclaim, that from the shroud of smoke and flame pealed wildly the imperial name. But on the British heart were lost the terrors of the charging host, for not an eye the storm that viewed changed its proud glance of fortitude nor was one forward footstep stayed as dropped the dying and the dead fast as their ranks the thunders tear fast they renewed each serried square and on the wounded and the slain closed their diminished files again 
till from their line scarce spears length three emerging from the smoke they see helmet and plume and panoply then wake their fire at once each musketeer's revolving knell as fast as regularly fell as when they practised to display their discipline on festal day then down went helm and lance down were the eagle banners sent down reeling steeds and riders went corslets were pierced and pennons rent and to augment the fray wheeled full against their staggering flanks the english horsemen's foaming ranks forced their resistless way then to the musket knell succeeds the clash of swords the neigh of steeds as plies the smith his clanging trade against the cuirass rang the blade and while amid their close array the well-served cannon rent their way and while amid their scattered band raged the fierce rider's bloody brand recoiled in common rout and fear lancer and guard and cuirassier horsemen and foot a mingled host their leaders fallen their standards lost scott there was no time to be lost blucher and bulow were beginning to press hard upon the french right as early as five o'clock napoleon had been obliged to detach lobel's infantry and demont's horse to check these new enemies they succeeded in doing so for a time but as larger numbers of the prussians came on the field they turned lobel's right flank and sent a strong force to seize the village of planchenois which it will be remembered lay in the rear of the french right end of chapter 15 part 5 recording by dave gillespie ashland kentucky